Hey everyone, it's Joel. If you've been following the podcast, you know that we cover a lot of content that's coming up in my ethics classes. I teach ethics in a university context, and this gives me the opportunity to wrestle with a lot of really interesting ideas and arguments from contemporary philosophers and ethicists. One thing that I'm going to do moving forward with the podcast is invite some of the philosophers we're talking about in class to come on the podcast and have a discussion about their work. So that's what you can look forward to in this episode. I'm going to have a discussion with philosopher Naomi Zak. This past week in my ethics class, my students were wrestling with an argument she has, according to which identity politics does not belong in the government. I had my students prepare a set of questions for her ahead of time. I asked them to throw out any questions or objections they had regarding her argument. So in this episode, she's going to start talking through some of those questions. I sent them to her ahead of time, and then her and I have a conversation about that as well. So I hope this is fun and interesting and also maybe gives you an insight into what university students are thinking about certain philosophical issues. I'm really grateful to Naomi Zak for doing this. It was a really fun conversation. Her work is really fascinating. So I hope you'll stick around for the conversation and for more to come. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I'm really excited to have this episode come out. Today, I'm going to be talking with Naomi Zak. Naomi Zak is a professor of philosophy at Lehman College, City University of New York. She has written various articles and books on topics related to feminism, gender justice, race, politics, intersectionality, and so on. Two of her recent books are Philosophy of Race, An Introduction, and one that my students have been thinking about, her recent book, Progressive Anonymity, From Identity Politics to Evidence-Based Government. And so if you're one of the students in my class listening in, you'll be familiar with this name, Naomi Zak, and you'll be familiar with some of her arguments um, claiming that identity politics does not belong in government and that in the fight for racial equality, we need to pursue other means, other policy interventions on racial inequality that are more universal and big tent in nature rather than targeted and identitarian. So Naomi Zak, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, I'm just gonna hand it over to you. I know you have a lot of thoughts, a lot to say, and we're very eager to hear it. So why don't you go ahead and uh, share with us what's on your mind. Okay, so I've gotten a number of questions uh, from your students, uh, Joel, and they're, they're all very good questions, um, but, because there were so many of them, I tried to pull out a few major themes. I want to talk about those themes. But I also want to start with a pretty interesting question uh, that I think you called uh, biographical. How did I first start thinking about identity politics? Um, let me tell you what I'm thinking about identity politics now, and then I'll answer the question. So it used to be the case decades ago, that feminist writers would say the personal is political. 
And by that, they meant that if you have a, a personal problem as a woman, there's a tendency to think it's just your individual difficulty. And what feminists tried to do was to expand these personal problems into group problems that could have political solutions. The personal is political. What has happened now is the culture wars have been politicized. So in other words, there were very strong disagreements within society outside of government. Outside, Maybe they had some inroads in this or that political party. But the leaders of different political parties have cashed in on them by making them political issues. So the Republicans are pretty much pro-life. Democrats are pretty much pro-choice. Democrats have a, a liberal uh, attitude toward transgender people. The Republicans uh, are against uh, uh, any, even the very existence of transgender people. Um, uh, and so on. You know, Democrats are are more liberal about uh, immigration. The Republicans tend to emphasize the criminality of immigrants. So you had these you had these tensions within society, and all of a sudden, they have been co-opted by politicians. I think uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida is is an even more Trumpian example of this than Donald Trump was complete with censorship uh where where you know local school boards and libraries are making lists of books that have to be removed uh from from the uh the eyes and use of children you know we've never really seen anything like this but what's happened is disagreements within the culture wars have become political issues but there are only two political parties and people very intensely will identify with the political party that's expressing their view in the culture wars, but there's no room for dialogue because the political party system is an oppositional system. It's not a system where the two parties get together and come up with some kind of um, compromise. I mean, sometimes they do that with some legislation, but for the most part, it's, it's an oppositional system. And because people have no choice really but to identify as either uh, Republican or Democratic in a political sense, their political views become part of their identities because the political views reach into very personal thoughts that they might have about what's right and what isn't right. And what's happened is instead of the personal is political, what we now have is the political is personal. And it's a flip. And I think it's very dangerous. Um, I, and the reason it's dangerous is that we don't know how far a side that we're opposed to might go. And it's also dangerous because because if they lose elections, you know, they don't know how far we're going to go. So it's a winner. It, it, it's set up as winner takes all system. And it's not just the winner takes all in terms of power. It's the winner the winner takes all in terms of using their power to impose their ideas. I mean, it's it's an ex, it's extraordinarily um, difficult uh, to to live through this because it just you know it goes beyond. Um, 
it goes beyond the actual issues. It even goes beyond whether or not we can preserve what we used to think of as democracy. It just creates a tremendous um, tension about opinions and positions that previously were could be debated in a societal context outside of government. Now they're in government. Now, why is why is that? dangerous? Well, the main reason it's dangerous is because government, first of all, government has the power to do things that can't be done by individuals or small groups or, or smaller government union uh, units. And second of all, government has the preponderance of physical force. So if you get on the wrong, if you disagree with your neighbor, you might stop talking to them. Um, if you don't like the way your child is being taught in school, you can send them to another school. But if, if government has imposed, say, um, an abortion restriction and a woman violates that, she can end up in jail, you know, and if she resists arrest, uh, she's subject to physical force. So, so government is not um, this warm, fuzzy thing that always helps us. Government ha will, will defend its policies by force if necessary. That is extremely dangerous um, when you're talking about ideas that are extremely personal. I mean, it's not even clear to me that even on a personal sense, people should be so concerned with what other people do with their reproductive systems. I mean, who? why is it anyone else's business if a woman chooses to have a child or chooses to have an abortion? Why is it concerned other people, um, if a young person decides they want to change the gender they were born with. You know, these are intensely private, intimate details of people's lives. Now we have we have government. We not, not only have our neighbors, we not only have society making judgments, but we have government with all of its power taking on the ability to, to intercede in people's lives. Okay, so now let me go back to that first question. How did I first get interested in the problems with identity politics? Well, I noticed something um, during the Trump administration, and I think it was the, um, the Unite the Right uh, march in, um, when was that? I believe it was 2016. I'm not exactly, you know. 2017, yeah. 17, okay. Mm -hmm. So for years, and I saw this happening for years, progressive writers and scholars working in race insisted that whiteness was invisible and white people needed to realize that they also had a race, right? That white people also had a race. Um, and, and that kind of set the stage because you then got a group of white people in the name of white supremacy by literally pulling down from the cloud old myths uh, about non-whites and Jews, asserting their whiteness. In other words, yes, we have a race and we're the, we're the superior race, okay? So I realized, well, you know, in a sense, there was an assumption that identity politics was just a question of people with disadvantaged and oppressed identities gaining voice. 
and and asking for more power in society. But but the conceptual framework on which they did that really opened the door to other, to to oppressors asserting their identities. You see, and and we have a much different situ we have a much different situation than we did when identity politics was simmering. All right, people used to talk about identity politics, but it wasn't yet identity politics. It was it was people trying to act on behalf of the groups that they belong to, not so much in government, maybe in society, maybe within institutions. Everybody called that identity politics. Now we have real identity politics. We have politics based on um, a pushback from white identities and a kind of dismayed reaction to that uh, uh, by and on behalf of non-whites. So in other words, you know, I hate to talk about real events as though they're as though they're uh, theories uh, becoming real, but but that almost seems to be what's happened. Now, the 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 foundation for identity politics was quite legitimate um, and there was a need for it up to a certain point. After World War II, and I did some research, I think it's in that in that book. If 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 not, it was in, in um the Ethics and Mores of Red. No, I think it what it is in progressive anonymity. Um there were a number of writers and intellectuals talking about the Nazi Holocaust in which six million Jews were killed. And their approach the, almost uniformly, their approach was to do a sort of psychological analysis of the Nazis and the oppressors, right? You, you got very little positive statements of Jewish identity. It, and it was the, the approach was to criticize uh, bigotry and talk about the kind of mind that led somebody to a whole pattern of, of oppressive thought. So what was really needed was the people who were being oppressed by these thoughts to assert their own identities in positive ways. And, and I think in a way that cleared the stage, um, if not for the civil rights movement, but certainly for the, for the black power uh, movement that followed it. And then, you know, there are all these identities that, that flourished and got lots of attention until all of a sudden we have this tremendous pushback from white people asserting their identities and they really don't care if those identities are oppressive. That's the, pre that's the situation that we're in now. So, okay. Um, so Naomi, just, yeah. were you suggesting that early on in the formation of identities, so like the formation of the black power movement, like this was a healthy and fruitful formation of identity um, is that right? Like, I understand you to be saying early on, this was actually a really productive form of political yeah. and social movement. Okay, social movement, social movement with social response resulting in non-discrimination law, which is pretty universal. You know, they don't name the people who are not to be discriminated against. The non-discrimination law all says that uh, the government and and large entities can't discriminate against people based on race, religion, ethnicity, or, and they even say gender, okay. So, and I'm waiting for that to come up 
in the courts in terms of uh, this issue of trans of really what's amounted to the persecution of of transgender people. Uh, we'll see if they go back to the civil rights uh, legislation in in pushing back against that. So, so I think. I think identity politics has gotten very dangerous. I think it's become a sort of all-out war of identities, and I and I don't think there's any space um, for people on one side or the other to have any kind of discussion to understand what the issues are. And I'm even doubtful that the issues are issues of identity. Okay, uh, you know, I think. I think there are there are cultural problems that need to be that not only need to be solved on a societal level, but in a federal system, they have to be solved on a societal level. So take, for example, the fact that there are 18,000 different police departments in the United States and every one of those departments more or less enjoys a certain sovereignty. You know, they're not they're not under the rule of Congress or or the federal government in any way. They they report to local authorities on various levels. So there's been a call for police reform, um, but there's no top-down way to institute police reform. The only way police reform can come about as things now stand is if individual police departments start to change their culture. They Some of them have very militaristic cultures and start to examine if they have bias built into to some of their standard procedures. And there are some de uh, departments that are doing that. But identities are not really all that helpful in this problem because there is no there is no government mechanism for identities to get into. And it's not so much a question of identities or specific biases. It's a question of the kind of system that allows that bias um, to be expressed. And, and really what you're interested in is how can it be changed? It can only be changed, again, there are 18,000 different police departments. It can only be changed if there's a will to change it within these different units. Okay. so. So let me go on. Um, I noticed in the, all right. So what I think is the purpose of government, I'm with Karl Popper here, is to solve problems. And we have some problems that right now affect everybody, everybody in the United States, and to some extent, everybody in the world. So climate change and the extreme weather events resulting from climate change is a prime example of one of those problems. Now, Unfortunately, it's gotten swallowed up by identity politics, right? I mean, if you're a Republican, you're on the side that wants to deny climate change. You're on the side of, of companies that want to continue to make money by ignoring climate change. And if you're a Democrat, you see climate change as a terrible problem. But, you know, even if there's exaggeration on the left of the problem of climate change, I'm not saying that there is, but even if there were, I think we can, I think any rational person could agree that there really is a problem concerning climate change. And, and what we need is good government based on the best science to figure out how, how this problem can be ameliorated or solved. I mean, another pro another problem we have 
Well, we saw a tremendous um, identity, political identity, political um, tension during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, the red states, well, it wasn't real. It was just the flu. They didn't want to wear masks. Um, they didn't want lockdowns. They didn't want social distancing. And actually, and they thought the science, they took a conspiratorial attitude toward the science. And meanwhile, the whole healthcare system was not really prepared to deal with that particular pandemic. And it's not even clear that they've learned how to be prepared for the next pandemic. So we don't, you know, I mean, the other thing that, you know, I want to say, it's not just the right that's problematic. So um, President Biden uh, is going to run a second time on this theme of saving the soul of America. Okay. Well, um, is he a politician? Is he a government leader? Or is he a um, uh, a religious, uh, is he a preacher? I mean, what what business does government have taking on this nebulous thing of the soul of America? What is the soul of America, right? <laughs> you know, so I mean, these, these, the government has become disassociated from actual problems that real people are experiencing, and it's become ferociously intense and combative, given the two-party system, um, uh, based on the identities of people who who are leaders in, in one or the other party. And then you have these other sort of random things that crop up, like well, the soul of America. Yeah, sure. You know, we should do everything we can to help the soul of America. But what does that mean? You know what I'm saying? What 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 has it got to do with government? What does it got to do with climate change? What does it got to do with lack of affordable housing? What does it got to do with the fact that we don't have a coherent immigration policy? So well, even that language, yeah. the soul of America, feels like it. It's going to invite identitarian conflict. I mean, yes. I can imagine people who are opposed to what Biden stands for, or who feel like they've been excluded by his policies, they might say, well, I don't know what you mean by soul, but I suspect it's a story of salvation that doesn't agree with my view of salvation or what I go. think the soul of America is. So yeah, that's very interesting. And then make America great again, right? What does that mean? Uh, yeah, of course, if America was great in the past and we're no longer great, sure, we want to be great again. But what do we mean by that? But people get very excited over these things that have nothing to and they and they become identitarian and they really have nothing to do with the real problems that we're confronted with. So let me um, there were a few. So I've talked about the culture wars and how the culture wars have now become politicized, which has put us in the worst possible position. I've talked about how the idea that the personal is political has flipped. So the political is now, what what passes for the political is now personal. Um, and I, I just want to say something about a couple of other things that came up in the questions. And then, you know, I, I leave it to you uh, Joel, to follow through with further questions, reparations. Okay. So the argument for reparations is people of color, especially African-Americans, but really if you're talking about reparations, you have to include Native Americans, 
um, there were there was a gesture toward reparations for Asian Americans after the in in with with the World War II internment of Japanese Americans in mind. There's never been an, uh, an official apology for slavery. I think it's only a couple of years ago that Congress passed a resolution against lynching. Um, so the, the view of reparations is that past atrocities and oppressions don't just go away when they stop because their effects get passed on intergenerationally and they disadvantage a whole group. And therefore, there should be some form of compensation plus apology plus, if possible, punishment, although we're probably too far away in time to punish anybody except maybe some corporations that were in existence before the Civil War uh, uh, to enact punishments for slavery. So the possibility would be compensation for the descendants of slaves. Now, this is a big problem. Sorry, the descendants of slaves. This is a big problem because you would have to prove the descendants that all the descendants of slaves um, intergenerationally came to... I mean, we know they did, but the question is, how do you prove it, that they intergenerationally inherited the disadvantages that go back to not just slavery, but also Jim Crow. And there are many people who are, you know, this is continuing to focus on the Black group. There are many people who are Black who are not descendants of slaves. They might have been descendants of uh, uh, free Black people. There were some. Or they might be descendants of recent immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean. So there's a tremendous amount that has to be sorted out in this. And given the present political climate, real reparation, you know, how, how do you how do you arrive at a monetary value? But even if you did, given the present political climate, you would know that the pushback would be overwhelming because you would have so many people, again, who who are descendants of immigrants who came to the United States after after emancipation. Um, who, if they trace their lineage back to before the Civil War, uh, would assert their families never owned slaves. And you know, you could just see how this is this is not something that could you could wave a wand and do it. However, on a mass level, affecting all members of the group, it would if you had real reparations, say for um, U.S. government violations of treaty. Uh, treaty agreements with Native Americans, almost every one of which uh, the government has defaulted on. Well, I mean, about half of the land in the continental United States should be restored uh, to Native American tribal you, tribal groups. You know, that's that's not going to happen. That's not the way history goes. But what you could have. Um, instead of a broad policy of reparations, and you see this cropping up from time to time, is very specific reparations. So for example, Georgetown University, after student pressure, acknowledged that they benefited from money they got from the sale of a number of slaves. And they have, they have admitted it, and they have since, they have uh, brought that money forward allowing for inflation, and they've set up a uh, a scholarship fund for minority students. That's a form of reparations. 
in a town in Illinois, um, outside of Chicago, the city council voted to give African-American residents uh, a credit of $25,000 if they wanted to buy a house or renovate their house because they specifically acknowledged that there was a past of discrimination in housing against African-Americans. So those kinds of very specific targeted reparations, you know, if you can really specify who did what to whom and, and, and you have a strong case that the people benefiting are, are in a direct line from those who originally harmed in some way. Yes, I mean, I think that I think that's fine, but I just don't think the idea of whole scale reparations is is coherent. So, all right, so that's me on reparations. Um, another interesting question is protests. Do protests work? Well, there have been studies that people live in communities where there have been protests in favor of racial justice are more likely to support targeted uh, reforms uh, that help people of color. They're more likely to not be racist if they if they witness protests. The thing about protests is they educate. Uh, they actually educate wide numbers of the population because you know we don't necessarily live in a country where everybody is equally informed. So a protest is something that you can't really take your eyes away from, especially if it's somewhat disruptive or stops traffic, what, whatever it is, but it gets people thinking about something that they might not otherwise think about, but it's only going to work if it gets translated into some kind of political action. I mean, the protest in itself, um, if it's supposed to have political consequences, the protest in itself is not going to bring about political change. And a good example of that is the Occupy, the Occupy movement. You Are you, yeah, you remember the Occupy? Okay, so the Occupy movement never really had a clear goal, didn't have clear leadership, and it wasn't only in, it started Occupy Wall Street. Um, it spread throughout the United States. It's, it even spread throughout the world. It didn't really accomplish anything except it made people aware of income inequality as an issue. It, it made people aware of the difference between the 1% that has more than 50% of the wealth and the other 99%. So, you know, and also, well, the, the other thing about protests, which is both um, an asset and a liability, the asset is the protests are an outlet for people to express themselves. You know, they can go in public and say, this is where I stand, this, this, especially, you know, with handmade signs. I mean, the, the, there's something very heartfelt um, about genuine, grassroots protests but it's also um it's a double-edged sword it has the liability that having gone out and protested they the the people who are protesting might think that they're doing everything that they could that they can do and they're exhausted and they just go back to their normal lives so um yeah, I you know, I think I think protests are fine. I think it's also important to use the structures that already exist. I mean, one of the things I noticed is in totalitarian countries, 
when things get really unbearable, everybody goes out onto the streets. I mean, you have protests of you can have protests of hundreds of thousands of people. We saw that happening recently in some provinces in China when they went back to restrictive COVID policies. And the government did a 180 and removed all restrictions. Why is that? Because if everybody goes out on the street, it really puts the government in jeopardy. We don't really, as long as we have democratic structures and as long as we have courts um, to interpret the law, we don't really need protests in the same way that they're needed in countries where they don't have these kinds of structures legal structures in place uh, to bring about change. So, okay. So that's really what I wanted to say about um, answers to the questions uh, that I read through. And now, you know, you should, you should take the discussion wherever you like, Joel. <laughs> yeah, that was really, really helpful, really insightful. So let's just, um, let me just touch on this point you're making about protests. And I think a lot of my students we're wondering about your views on protests because, and I'll just share this for the listener who maybe isn't taking the class or hasn't read progressive anonymity. One of your arguments, and you said this earlier, is that the key function, key purpose or responsibility of the government is to solve problems. It has the capacity to do so. And so it's, it has this responsibility to do so. And it is, I think what a lot of students hear when they hear that statement is they think that it's therefore morally problematic to so dysfunction into the government to if you do anything that sort of disrupts the problem solving capacity of the government you're doing something morally objectionable and so i think that's why students were wondering about protests because in, in a lot of people's minds protests is, is it's not morally objectionable it's it's good it has a, an important social function at least when done right and so I think that's why they were wondering, like, okay, can we protest? Does your view allow for the moral appropriateness of protest? And what I heard you just say is that, look, if protesting gets the government to function better, if it gets the government to actually start moving forward on solving problems, um, then you're, then protest is actually helping the government achieve its purpose. It's helping the government perform the way it's supposed to. Is that, am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, I mean... Make no mistake, we have a form of government that is really limping along as government. I mean, it's not functioning well. Um, and it's not functioning well in terms of addressing the real problems that millions upon millions of Americans uh, are having to deal with on a daily basis. So, so it's not that protests would interrupt the functioning of government. I mean, sure, protests can help the functioning of government. Protests are fine. You know, pro I mean, I draw the line between what government officials do and what people who are not government officials do. And I think people who are not government officials should be free to do whatever they want to do that doesn't break the law. And, and if a law is particularly unjust, they should be free to protest the law. But but I don't think, you know, I think a lot of things that would would admit of of protesting don't really rise to real political issues that we actually want the government to deal with. But I think protests are fine. 
Hey everyone, you've been listening to part one of my discussion with Naomi Zak about her views on identity politics. Stick around for the next episode to hear us talk through more of the questions my students raised about her view. See you next time. Thank you.